Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I surprised a lot of my friends and fans last year when I joined TEPCO, Japan's largest electric utility. I admit, at first glance, it seems a pretty radical departure from my history in startups, and in most ways, it is. However, there is a transformation going on right now in energy all over the world. And while there's been very little disruption in the energy markets over the past 70 years, 10 years from now, the markets will look nothing like they do today. Well, today, we sit down with Yohei Kiguchi, CEO of Enichange, one of the more innovative startups building a business in the new energy markets. Now, before you understand what Enichange does, I need to give you a little bit of background on how energy deregulation is working around the world. And the story of the coming disruption is quite similar in all developed nations. Since the days of, well, Thomas Edison, really, the power company was responsible for creating the electricity, building and maintaining the power grids to transmit that electricity across the country, and then billing the customers for the electricity they used. Because of the cost involved and the importance of universal and reliable electricity, it made sense for this to be done by a single, tightly regulated monopoly. And that's how things stayed for about a hundred years. But over the past decade, around the world, the costs of generating electricity have dropped, and we've seen smaller, more affordable plants and a proliferation of solar. On the retail side, smart meters and the Internet has made it easier to collect data and to bill customers. And so, markets around the world are being deregulated, with power generation, power transmission, and retail billing all being handled by separate companies. While power generation gets most of the press, most of the market disruption has focused on the retail side, with hundreds of companies entering the market and many offering steep discounts. Around the world, electricity consumers have never had this much choice. And that's where Enichange comes in. Enichange is by far Japan's largest energy-switching website. It provides tools that allow consumers and businesses to shop for the best or the cheapest energy supplier. But as Yohei explains, the cheapest is not usually the best. And Yohei also has some interesting observations on why Japan is a better place to start a startup than Europe. But you know, Yohei tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Yohei Kiguchi of Enichange, an energy price comparison site. So thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks for having your time with me and the team. What I find really interesting about Enichange is, is you started this business in 2015, and that was even before the retail markets were deregulated, which happened in April 2016. What attracted you to the business? We set up the company exactly one year before the market deregulation, just one year to 
prepare for the market deregulation. So that's why like, we just intentionally set up the company in April 15. That makes sense. But investors typically don't like to make big bets on yeah. unknown companies and unknown founders and, and markets that don't exist yet. So what attracted you to the whole idea and how did you get the investors on board with this? Basically two points. So one is the energy deregulation is happening all over the world. The UK is back to 2002 where I was living there. All the European countries like due to the EU treaty. So 2008, 2008 or nine, like all the EU nations need to be deregulated energy market. Every country when, when the market was deregulated, like similar company, like senior energy switching company kind of emerging. This business model, which was not happening in Japan yet, but like it was basically set to happen anyway. Yeah, so you could point to the success in foreign markets and say, this is how it happened overseas. So of course it's gonna work the same way in Japan. Yeah. Excellent. Tell me about your customers. So how many people visit your site every month? How many people are really interested in changing energy retailers? So let me give you like the big picture for us. So basically like 70 million customers, registered customers in Japan, and which is basically like the half of the total energy consumption in Japan. Okay, the other half is commercial customers. Oh, so half residential, half yeah, the, yeah, commercial. So like, yeah, the half residential, half commercial, yeah. For the leisure sales sector, is like 70 million. And then the industrial sector is uh, roughly 1 million customers. And of those 70 million, how many are coming to your website every month? Our site average monthly visitor is like 2 million. That's really high. <coughs> for for a, a potential market of 70 million, if you have 2 million users visiting your site every month, that's fantastic penetration. Yeah, then like as a country overall, like there's over 10 million energy switch has already happened since the market deregulation. You know, we are the number one company in a switching market. So the number does make sense. What is your business model exactly? Do you sell leads to companies? Do you get a commission when customers switch? How do you guys make money? Pretty much like every single like an energy comparison website in the world is having like same business model basically, like free for the customer and then get a commissions from the new suppliers if you acquire a customer. Okay. So if 10 million people out of a potential market of 70 million have already switched in the last year and a half, yeah. that's a pretty active market. Yeah. Are people mostly switching based on price? Yes. Like we were dreaming like you know, people want to choose a greener company or cleaner companies or like a more local regional company. But actually at the end of the day, like 95% of customers saying like it's just a cheaper. Just price. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's the same, like on the UK, like UK got the same statics, like 90%, like it's just cheaper. I think it's, it's an interesting market right now in that energy is a, a commodity. And it, it's been interesting watching how people have tried to differentiate. And so you see a lot of advertising that's focused on, like you mentioned, green and community supply. But looking at how people switch, that's not important to them? But actually not that true. I'm saying like, you know, the cheaper, but I'm not saying cheapest. Oh, okay. So, so consumers need a lower price to switch, but they're not looking for the absolute lowest. Yes, true, yeah. Huh. So when the market became open like one and a half year ago, it used to be only 10 companies who were supplying electricity in Japan, but it's now like, you know, 400 companies right. register themselves to be energy retailer. So like, you know, com- the market itself is just suddenly getting really crowded. But now it's kind of shrinking down as well. You know, merger and acquisition is happening right now. 
So now only 30 to 50, probably the maximum 100 active player right now. How many companies are listed on your site? 70. And how do you choose which 70? Because on, on paper, there's 400-ish companies in Japan in this market. So the one is need to agree with our commission model. And the secondly, like, we also interview the companies to see the quality of the company. And if the company doesn't have any kind of experience or like got a good criteria to be an energy supplier, we actually don't put that on. You know, I want to get back and dive deeper into the market a little later on. Yeah. But right now I want to talk a little bit about, about you. Because you're running, you're involved in a number of different companies. So uh, you also run SMAP smart meter analytics platform. And both companies were spun out of an organization called uh, Cambridge Energy Data Lab. Yep. Can you tell us a bit about those two organizations? I'm actually still living in the UK. My main home is actually in London and I'm paying tax for the UK pretty much. I went to the UK back to 2012 as a Cambridge, Cambridge student. And then like, I started a master's degree and carried on to the PhD in the energy technologies in Cambridge University. I was examining like smart meter data analytics. So I'm like kind of part of the computer science society. So I decided to set up a company. It's called a Cambridge Energy Lab Data Lab. That was in 2013. And that was slightly too early to set up the company for like energy deregulations, like, you know, energy like business. So that first company, yeah. the, the Cambridge Energy Data Labs, was that with some of your fellow students or what, what was the purpose of that, that company? Uh, so actually before my PhD and the, my the Cambridge carriers, I was running a company in Japan. I started a company like 21, ran the company for three years, and then like managed to sell it. So I have a little bit of experience over the like entrepreneur and then having a, some little bit like a cash as well. I inject most of the money, but like, you know, some like investor want willing to collaborate with me. So I set up a company that came to energy they love. And then we actually try out like, you know, a bunch of different ideas and only two out of 10 was going well. Okay. Then so eight is fail basically. Then but like you know one happened to be like focusing on the energy market in Japan. And one is smart meter data analytics, which seems to be kind of global business. Then for the energy side, energy switching side in Japan is done by Japanese team. Was the smart meter science part is done by the Cambridge friends. Other than the fact they're in the same industry, they don't really have a lot to do yeah, with each other. History, yeah. Silicon Valley investors have a reputation that's pretty much deserved, that they're, they're not interested in investing anyth in anything outside of Silicon Valley. But Enichange's investors are primarily Japanese. Did it help you or hurt you with Japanese investors that your team was based in the UK and they had such strong ties to the UK? Yeah, so that was just impossible to manage Enichange's business from the UK. No Japanese investor willing to invest in the UK company. That was already like obvious. Like our client will be typical, typical like all the traditional Japanese company. Naturally, like very slow. You know, if we saying like we are the UK company, like you know, it's gonna like you know add another two years to get started the project with them. Yeah, that's how we started the company. All right, and so you're the only member of the management team that's like flying back and forth every two weeks. Everyone else is here in Japan yeah. full time. Yeah. Let's talk about the market here in Japan. Enerchange is a web-based company, but you guys started using uh, television ads pretty early on. Japanese startups in general, not just Enerchange, tend to go with television ads very early. If it's a $10 million round, 
a big chunk of that money will be spent on TV ads. Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually pretty much like, and also the, the main objective to raise money for that. So, yeah. So why, are, why is TV advertising so important in Japan? I mean, like, you know, that was kind of a big trend like last few years. You know, for the smaller, you kind know, average stage of startup, it tends to raise like 5 million, 10 million, like injecting like half of the raised money into the TV, TV commercials and then like, you know, see what's going to happen. In Japan, like, you know, there's kind of many good case studies right now. So that's why like, we actually try to do that. So, Is it a matter of credibility or is it simply a matter of reach? You're reaching a bigger audience. I think it's a both way. Probably like reaching a customer, getting more installation, like more installs of apps. It should come first, yeah. And the secondary kind of credibility. How soon after launch did you guys start doing TV ads? So we started TV commercial like this spring or just one year after market deregulation. Okay. So basically, as soon as you had the money to do it. Yeah, I think that's soon. Yeah, <laughs> too. Yeah. You mentioned before that the market is pretty much split 50-50 between commercial and residential users. These are very different markets in terms of how you reach the customers and what their buying decisions are. Did you have a different go-to-market for retail and commercial? Or? Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. So actually, like our revenue size is roughly 50-50. So just in align with the market. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, like slightly like industrial customer is actually larger than the residential sector, to be honest. The residential customers, it's like we're 100% done on the website. It, yeah, and I noticed but on, the, on the commercial side, you have consultants and, and salesmen that, yeah. that do direct outreach. Yeah, it's true. So like for the industrial commercial side, it's more like, you know, kind of like, you know, energy consultant. They basically send us inquiries or like they do like, you know. So inbound sales. Yeah, it's just inbound sales. Kind of example customers, let's say, like, you know, kind of huge factories or the buildings or like the hospital or something. They can't really switch like energy companies on just on the website. They both will definitely ask the manager, like, you know, are they reliable? Like, you know, we are, we are we operating the hospital. What happened, like, if that, like, in a bracket, what happened, like, if you switch energy company or something? Well, yeah, and also they're, the way they use energy might be completely different. Yeah. They, they might be operating at night to try to get cheaper rates or their, their use profile will be unique. Yeah, true. Commercial sector is much more heterogeneous. We basically analyze the consumption by like accessing smart meter data. Then, yeah, we consult the better or cheapest energy companies. Like. Is your commission based on the customer's energy use over the past three months or the next three months or how is it calculated? Yeah, so it's pretty much tight with annual electricity consumption. Well, that makes sense. So if you're switching over a factory, it's worth putting one or two people on yeah. there and yeah. optimizing exactly yeah. what they're going to yeah. do. Yeah, it's literally like last week, we got like one of the largest clients. That was equivalent to like 100,000 households. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's like in a very, very important. Like, you know, one, one guy literally like spent this last three months for so, just for this company. But I, I can see why that's, why Interchange is really attractive for them because you take the same commission from everyone. Yeah. And so you've got no mixed incentives. Your, your incentive is really to help them out and find them the right one. So that was actually like a good point. Like there was some discussion in the UK side, switching website commission varies. That's kind of untransparency or like in a commissions. Basically like when we kind of landed in Japan, we got already like learned from the UK experience we set the commission criteria saying like, you know, we, we try to be uniform as much as we can. And basically this is our commissions. 
in theory, which is not going to be too high for energy company, they should be able to afford it. Well, it, it's as long as you keep your commissions lower than the average cost of customer acquisition, everyone will love you and keep signing up. Yeah, so that's why we got a 70 company right now. Yeah, and looking at the website, you've got all the energy companies that I know about anyway. Yeah, yeah so that's why like, you know, we can get trust from both sides from the energy companies, like, they can trust me. And then at the same time, the like, consumer can trust me because we know like get kind of any bribery deal. Yeah, I mean, and in the end, that that trust is your entire brand on both sides. Yeah. If anyone thinks that one company is getting an advantage over another, either on the customer side or the the supplier side, yeah, then it all falls apart. Yeah. Thinking five, ten years into the future, are you thinking about? expanding into things like um, comparison sites for mobile phones or similarly complex services? The short answer is actually no. I'm just energy geek. And I'm not literally like no interest in like in a smartphone, no like SIM card or like, you know. So do what you know. Yeah, do what I know. And actually, but like my expertise basically is like, you know, smart meter data or like, you know, big data. So I'm more like, kind of excited and like looking forward to in the energy industries like you know as you mentioned like the smart meter or like you know kind of EVs, budget power plant, like you know many many other massive opportunities down the line of the energy industrial revolutions. You know like you know it's gonna happen like in the next ten years. I agree. I mean I, I think we were talking about this before, and I think that today the energy industry looks a lot like it did 50 years ago. Yeah. But 10 years from now, it's going to look nothing like it does today. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's interesting. Like, obviously, like, we are not the first price-switching website in Japan. So there's like a huge one in, called Kakakukomu. Right. And then we are the first energy-switching website. But like price comparison website kind of expanding into the energy price comparison, obviously. Yeah, then, I was yeah. actually going to ask you specifically about Kakaku. So do you view them as a, a major competitor? Or do you think that their focus on price exclusively puts them at a bit of a disadvantage to you. Yeah, yeah. that was officially announced the deal for the industrial customers. We officially partnership with Kakaku. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. So they are basically under the branch, like under the umbrella of Energy Network. Congratulations on that. Yeah, so it means like you know, we're actually dominating the market on the, for, the, for the industrial customers. And then the legislation sector, is we are technically competing with each other. And then that's fine. Like, you know, it's fair to have two price comparison website in the you know hundred billion dollar industry. <laughs> so <laughs> there's room. Yeah. But still. We actually looking at like this business as a just entrance of the huge energy industrial revolution. So we actually like you know been providing much deeper solution for energy companies. You know, helping them to acquire the customers. We help them to manage the customers or like analyze the customer with the smart meter data or blah, blah, blah. We're actually doing a much deeper solution. So what kind of analysis do you want to provide them? What is, what is the information you think they don't have that, you're, that you want to give to them? I mean, actually, the short answer is actually profitability. And the before the deregulation of the managing market, energy company never look into the individual profitability. So they actually, they don't know how much earning from this particular customer, or even they don't know like they're losing money from this customer. Right. Well, before it didn't matter anyway because they yeah, had to provide. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, but like now the market was deregulated. The energy company is like forced to compete. As a normal like a public company, they start looking at the profitability of, the, of their business. To do so, like, you know, they need to analyze the data. Yeah, it's, that, it's really interesting. I, I think that Energy retail companies or energy companies in general, up until now, 
And I think internally in most of these companies, they, they view the government regulators as their customer. Because for the last 50, for the last 100 years, the energy companies have gone to the government and say, we want to do this. We want to raise our rates. We want to build these power lines. We want to put up this power plant. And if the government said yes, they could do it. If the government said no, they couldn't. So I think the idea of the retail customer as a customer is a pretty new one to the industry. Yeah, true, yeah. Well, have you found that Japanese energy companies have made that shift? Are they looking at their customers as actual customers? Do they want to know more about them? Yeah, pretty much like large companies, like kind of, let's say top 10, top 20 company, they're rushing to like kind of adapt to like new technologies right now. And the other company are pretty much like, you know, my client actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we actually monopolizing like all the like kind of customers analysis part in Japan. Yeah, so they, they are aware of that. Let's talk about Japan and the market here as a whole. You're mining the data. You're seeing why people are switching and how. So five, ten years from now, we won't have 400 retailers. We're going to be down to, I don't know what the number will be, but it'll be less. So who wins? Is it going to be the low-cost providers? Is it going to be the established utilities? The, the, probably the short answer is like the company who can adapt to the new technology trend. Japan has the largest active smart meter on the planet. Or nearly 40 million smart meter sending a half-hourly data to the server. And it was like in the UK, they actually like installed the small, like 10 million smart meter, but they're not actually not active. Right. So they're actually like storing the data on the meter, but they're not sending the data like half-hourly. Yeah, and actually Japan's system, the, the data quality is really high and the consistency is much higher than in most other countries. Yeah, exactly. Most people looking at this market will say it's going to be price-driven, so low cost will win, or it's reliability-driven, so the big brands will win. But what you're saying is there's going to be new technology and new uses in the market, and so differentiators will win. Mm, no, I think like, you know, kind of high-efficient company can win. Okay. By analyzing the data, yeah, operational efficiency. As you know, like the regional energy company is having like 50 years legacy, and then, like they are naturally and then very very slow, and they actually very very reluctant to adapt. And also at the same time, other kind of giant company who enter the energy market are also very huge organization. So like you know, gas companies or like telecom companies, they are very slow as well. But like this industry. It's like just a purely kind of financial business. Energy business is just all about data. It has been interesting to watch what's happened in like Texas and Europe and the, the markets that deregulated early. Because the really deep discounters all went out of business. Yeah. They couldn't sustain those, yeah. those margins. So yeah, it makes sense. Operational efficiency. So basically, it's not like a telecom business. You know, telecom business is still like a kind of gross profit margin is still really high. So they can dump the price to acquire the customers. But like energy industry is like, usually like their gross profit is less than 10%. Well, Yohei, I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you on that. So I'm gonna, I mean, I think it might well work out that way, but what if it evolves more like the mobile phone industry, which in a sense, it's, it's kind of similar. They're, they're selling a commodity that reliability is important, cost is important, but not like the most important thing. But mobile phones, both in Japan and the U.S., the markets evolved not so that 
they're competing on price, but they've created bundles and options that are so hard to understand, consumers can't tell what they're paying, basically. Do you think there's a chance the energy markets will move in that direction? That can be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, SoftBank and AU both have been uh, some of the most active new players in this market. Yeah, so that's absolutely true. So the major difference between like telecom industry and energy industry is, is the telecom industry is, I think, still the positive sum game. You know, it's still like an IoT is coming, like, you know, that's everything will be connected to the internet. Like, you know, the, even like a refrigerator will have the like, you know, like SIM card in the, in the near future. So like the number of the connect connections still increasing like, you know, yearly basis. Whereas like you know, electricity consumption is pretty much zero sum games. Yeah. Like there's some some kind of kind of increasing momentum, which is like an you know, electric vehicle or something like that. But still, like you know, it's not like like telecom industry expansion. Yeah, I mean, actually, if you leave electric vehicles out of it, electricity consumption's been going down. Yeah. In both Japan and the United States, yeah. because of energy efficiency measures. Yeah. So industrial electric sector is still growing because like. Automization, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like residential sector, it's like LED lights and whatever. Like even we have like new iPhones, like in you know, the TVs, but like, you know, just getting very efficient and like just especially residential sector, electricity consumption going down. So it means like the market itself is basically pretty much steady. So in this kind of market, expansion source strategy it doesn't sustain all the time. That's true. It, it is. Stays. It's all market share, isn't it? Yeah. That's true, both on the retail side and the, the generation side. Actually, you know, that brings it after the Fukushima disaster and they shut all the nuclear power stations down. Japan's been relying a lot more on natural gas. Yeah. How do you think this is going to play out? I mean, the current consensus is very much against turning those nuclear power plants back on. But burning natural gas, it's, you know, terrible for the environment, for global warming. And it's terrible for Japan's balance of trade because all that gas is imported. Do you think we're going to see those nuclear plants turn back on? I personally believe against the nuclear power station. Like, kind of good point as you mentioned. Like, in a good for the kind of balance of trade, you know, which is kind of crucial point for like as a country. So that that absolutely makes sense. But at the same time, like, that's disaster still, and then, like you know, which is like against a global trend. No countries in the developed countries like in a building or like restarting like nuclear power station right now. Apart yeah, from the UK. Yeah. So, yeah. There's not a lot of new nuclear capacity being added. So do you think Japan is going to just decommission those plants early? As you know, like, no one knows how to decommission, like, the nuclear power station. So, like, you know... That's, <laughs> that's another problem. Yeah, that's yeah. another problem. Like, you know, ideas, like, you know, being, like, the first guy to in charge of, like, a decommission, like, nuclear power station is got to be absolutely a headache. Yeah, but Japan right now seems to be kind of stuck in this middle ground where... There's a lot of plants that are not operating. They cannot get permission to, to run again, but they aren't going through the decommissioning process either. They're just sort of kept in this limbo state. Yeah. And that's not good for anybody. Yeah, that's not good for anybody. Like, you just see wasting like a billion dollars like, for the maintenance, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of politics tied up in that as well, so we'll see. Well, listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, 
the education system, the legal system, the way people think about risk, anything at all to make things better for startups in Japan? What would you change? As an entrepreneur, like in the, living in London, so I feel like in the Tokyo is much easier, better place than London, in many ways. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like like how? It actually depends on the industry, I guess. But like let's say like energy industry, like if the listener here is like a kind of global audience, then I'm very very encouraging them to come to Japan or like kind of collaborate with Japanese company because like let's say that kind of Facebook like business, it's just no like local regional market like there's like only single global market which like oh global market and china market <laughs> yeah, pretty right, much yeah. right yeah. so pretty much like you know as long as like the market is like global market like every like people can do from wherever there, there can be some like local players at our stage so that's why like you want to you know, make a great billion dollar company like pretty much like gonna you know, go to silicon Valley in general speaking but in the UK is kind of struggling, like because whenever like in the UK company start like in a business, it just easily kind of concur by the American company. So like some of the part of business like energy, there's no global business. Right. The regional business everywhere, the highly fragmented business. In this fragmentation, Japan is the largest deregulated energy market in the world. But what about? I mean, that makes sense in terms of the energy markets in Japan are much bigger, but. Doing business day to day, making sales to Japanese utilities versus uh, UK utilities versus Texas utilities, is it pretty much the same process? It's, 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 I feel like it's literally the same. Like yeah. you know, like I've, I've been I've been struggling to like to negotiate like with a Tepco and a Tepco, but I'm also very struggling to do with like in you know, British Gas and an EDF. Yes. The same dinosaur, like you yeah, know, it's, well. it's the same. Utilities are, are going to be pretty conservative. <laughs> but actually, another kind of important part is the IPO. So the my company, Enerchange, is trying to go IPO next year, which never exists in the UK. Kind of IPO hurdle, like the buys, way higher. IPOs are much cheaper and have much lower requirements in yeah. Japan than they do in the US or yeah. in Europe in general, but in UK. So, I mean, actually, that's really good. Is that a good thing, though? Because a lot of Japanese IPOs are sort of like American Series Cs yeah. in terms of size. Yeah. But once a company IPOs, they've got a lot less flexibility. They, they've got to disclose a lot more. They've got shareholders who are trying to manage them quarter to quarter. So why is it a good thing that Japanese companies can IPO early? I think like, you made a nice point. So, so probably like, you know, after IPO, like, you know, some of the companies struggling to expand but basically like in the UK there's no like IPO bubble market so basically they can't really go IPO in the, in the UK less than billion dollar size company okay and, and so if, if someone needs to do a 10 million 20 million dollar round in the UK that I mean in Japan usually a company's going to IPO if they need to raise that kind of money yep. so in the UK that money's just not available those companies just flounder but the biggest difference is we can raise 10 million, 20 million in the UK. But okay, the question is, what's your exit strategy? Yeah. If seeing like an IPO is just too far away, the investor will ask you like it might be like M and A is your options. But there's no company in the UK who can pay like in 100 million to acquire a company. And then if they want to be acquired by the, you know the American company, they better be in the US because there's no decision maker in London. Is Japan better? I mean, there is the mother's IPO option, but so does Japan face that same problem with without the IPO, there's simply no 
exit strategy for Japanese companies? Yeah, so in Japan, it's like roughly a threshold is like 30 million. So less than 30 million, like we can, not like there's many buyers like who can pay 30 million. Yeah, about that range, basically like, you know, going to the IPO, which is like, you know, which is great. Like, you know, it's very low and everybody, everybody can go to the IPO. And the secondary, the entrepreneur can, can focus on business. To go to the IPO, it's like kind of two criteria, basically. How much revenue we got and how much profit we got. Pretty much that's all. But like, you know, to be acquired by like, you know, Facebook, more major, more importance is like, you know, how many events you attending where like Facebook digital maker is like around. And we can exchange like a card or like we can have a chat with, it, with them. And I feel like it's just literally wasting time. Huh. So it's, the IPO is just a much more predictable, safe path. You can plan for it. Everyone knows what to expect on, on both the investor and the startup side. Yeah. Again, I never attend like any pitching meeting. I, I never meet anyone who doesn't bring any revenue or like actual connection to me. Right. But it's just wasting time. So listen, do you want to have, throw something out that you would want to change about Japan? The only the one thing is kind of liquidity of the people's movement. You mean the people changing jobs? Yeah, kind of like the ah, flexibility. Yeah. Especially like uh, the, as age goes on, people like just reluctant to change the company, basically. Obviously, like the people's capability, which required by the company, it's been changing all the time. Right. Then, so the company wanted like reform the team uh, with keeping the flexibility. Like under the regulation of Japanese law, employees are well protected. It's Once, very hard to fire people in Japan. Yeah, it's also like, actually my intention is not like to fire people, but like we want to keep the high, nice tension between like a company and employee. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important cause and effect you have to keep in mind. So it's not just that it should be easy to fire people because you want to fire people. Nobody does. Yeah. But in Japan, because it is so hard to fire people, companies tend to think not let's look at the market and see what we can build and what opportunities, opportunities there are. They tend to look at their existing staff and say, okay, how can we use these people? What can we assign them to do? And that's inefficient for the companies. It's, it's a bad use of employee talent. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then like if employees are feeling like they need to catch up with the latest trend, like they can, they can like learn by themselves as well. But like, you know, many people's right now, like we just try to be you know, sticking to the companies until like, you know, AI will destroy all the jobs, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So, and hopefully they'll be retired by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all the annoying, annoying mentalities right now. But actually at the same time, like my company is hiring a lot like 60s, 70s from TEPCO or like, you know, TEPCO, like other energy, huge companies. Their, their experience is, is very valuable. Like, you know, it's a Toshiba engineers, like, you know, many startups want to hire him. This is something I think it, it is changing. I mean, it, it started changing with designers and engineers and people with specific skills in their like 20s and early 30s. So suddenly it became okay for big companies to hire them. But most of the employees at big companies or mid-sized companies who are now in their 50s or you know 60-ish, most of them were trained at a time to be generalists. Yeah. So they were brought into a company and they were put in sales and they were put in engineering and maybe a little time in HR. And a lot of these people don't have skills that are valuable outside of that company. Yeah, so it, generally speaking, it might be quite hard for, for the people's like, you know. 
But the ones that do, I think it's I think it's great. You're hiring people who are in their their fifties and sixties. These these mid or late career, is that common? Do you see more and more companies doing that in Japan? Now they're actually trying to do that because, like you know, many companies who are doing like who challenging into the energy industry, who are doing like healthcare industries, they need some very experienced people's help. But at the same time, as you said, uh, like I don't think like this trend won't be applied to the older forties, fifties, sixties. It's the only pretty tiny, tiny chunk we we hire. But I think even if it's only a tiny chunk, that's so valuable, because if that job market exists and people can change flexibly. We might have, you know, twenty years ago, a very talented forty-five-year-old engineer or salesman in a large Japanese company, whose boss has just lost a big political fight. He knows his career is not going to go so well in that company now, but he has no other options. But once there's this job mobility, suddenly the most talented ones can say, "Okay, well, let me look around. You know, let's see who else can use my talents." And that's that's starting to happen. Yeah, the average American entrepreneur age is somewhere around the forty, right? Yeah. So I think like in Japan, was a bit younger, probably say thirty-five or something. But now people getting older to be entrepreneur or like second entrepreneur, third entrepreneur. So yeah, I think that's a good thing to do. Hopefully, we'll be seeing a lot more of that in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, Yohei, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And we're back. You know, Yohei made a very interesting point about how very hard it is for companies to differentiate in a commodity market. Most of the energy advertising has focused on green energy or clean energy, but so far in Japan, customers simply want inexpensive, reliable energy, and that's how the markets have been shaking out all over the world. There are now over 400 companies in Japan's new deregulated retail energy markets, but startups have a hard time competing in the main markets of generation, transmission, and retailing. So far, almost all of the winners there have been the big, familiar names. But startups like Enerchange are succeeding at the margins. They are succeeding not by trying to take business away from the large established players, but by creating entirely new business models in the niches opened up by these large regulatory shifts. Now, Yohei's points about the attractiveness of the Japanese startup markets and the ease at which companies can IPO is interesting. In the past, I've criticized Japanese startups for IPOing too early. And while they still have so much growth potential, that makes sense when you compare Japan to San Francisco. But when you compare it to the UK or European markets, things do look quite a bit different. Either way you look at it, though, Japan is a great place to start a startup. And with all the deregulation going on in energy and finance and other fields. I'll be bringing you a lot more stories from the founders who are disrupting Japan. If you've got a story about energy and competing in a deregulated market, Yohei and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com/show111 and let us know what you think. 
When you come by this site, you'll see all the resources and links that Yohei and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, I know you've been meaning to do this for a while now, but when you get the chance, please do give us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can help us get the word out and to support the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.